Welcome to New Hope Underground's bonus content episode. And here are your hosts for this special question and answer extravaganza, Darren Hansen and Tyler Stecky. Hey, welcome to New Hope Underground. And this is our bonus content, Q&A, as we like to call it, affectionately known in a short, short and uh, abbreviated version of questions and answers. I just thought I'd throw that out there, Tower Sturkey. Well, hello, Darren Hansen. This is part two. It is. Actually, it's part it's like five. Part, it's like part, part four or five <laughs> total, but for this podcast, it's part two. Actually, it's part three. Oh, it is. Well, there, there you I go. I know. We did two on GL Talk as bonus content, and this is our third one on, is, okay, on the we Underground. Okay, we've already done two. All right. Part so five. This is, but this is our last one. People ask a lot of questions. God willing, We're this is our last try one. try to answer them all. <laughs> That's right. That's We've been trying to tackle this for a while now since we had that series called Asking for a Friend. People submitted questions. We had like 66 questions. We've been making our way through them. That's why it's take. we divided up into five different sections. We had uh, an Old Testament section of questions, a New Testament section of questions, uh, a section of questions on community and church. And then this is our second of two uh, on just miscellaneous, miscellaneous questions kinda in, in the Bible, yeah. A catch-all for the rest of them because they kind of were all over the place. Good questions, but miscellaneous. That's right. So Tyler and I are are here, and mainly it's mainly I throw out the questions and let him answer them. That's, <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. Here's the first question that we have for today. What is the difference between confess and repent? Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, conf- confess is something you do verbally, where, I mean, it's kind of bringing what you have done into light, which, I mean, confess isn't always a bad thing, because it talks about confessing Jesus Christ as uh, Lord, if you confess he is Lord. Um, so, I mean, it's it's verbally naming something that maybe you would have kept to yourself, whether that's something good or bad. Um, repent, uh, that's actually a thinking word um, for the most part, the Greek word metanoia, I mean, it literally means to change your mind. Uh, like, the, I think the picture that that word gives is turning a 180 in your mind, meaning that you, like a, a great example of even what that would be like is in the uh, uh, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, where it says when he came to his senses, um, that's kind of that idea of repentance, of he changed his thinking about something and it led to a change in behavior as well. So that's kind of the difference. Oftentimes they can kind of happen at the same time that there's a, a change in change of heart or change of mind, however you want to say it, which leads to confession. You actually name it to someone else that you did something wrong. Um, but yeah, I'd say... Very directly it was used as a, a farming term or a military term to just basically... Which repent. one? Repent. Oh, really? Turn around. To repent is to do an about face. Oh, cool. And, I like uh, that. Also, is used in farming for the plows. You would repent and go the other way down the field. I've never heard that before. That's a very cool idea. Yeah, I think it's, it's old English language. We don't use the word repent yeah. in any other context usually nowadays, except for like when it comes to the Bible sure. or church. A lot of people don't don't hear that. What they're used to is we're used to that guy on the street corner yelling "repent," the end yeah. is near kind of thing. Yeah, because I think people hear the word repent and they think it just means you feel sorry about something. But I mean. There are a lot of times I've felt sorry about my sin, but I don't always immediately repent 
meaning I will continue to do it for a while. I don't change my thinking about it. I may know it's wrong, but continue in it. But then I finally, when I have that change of heart, that's when there's, like you said, an about face and begin to live different. And maybe some of the differentiation is uh, in in context of talking. Usually when people are talking about this, we're talking about in talk context of salvation or coming to Christ, yeah. understanding who Jesus is and confessing and repenting. Why are those separated? Why are they different? Well, they're different just in the sense, like you said, I mean, one's vocal, out of the mouth. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, yeah. as Paul as Paul wrote. And and the other one is a, is a lifestyle change, that I'm going to commit to my lifestyle change. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, you hit it, hit it, and I'm just repeating it, just kind of summing it up. But anyway, here's the next one. Is it godly or biblical to not like someone? Can you actually love everyone if a part of that everyone is someone you don't like? <laughs> That's a real practical question. <laughs> yeah, this is where it gets into, I mean, we begin to conflate English words and definitions with biblical ideas. Because, I mean, right there, even in the way the question was worded, it made like and love be the same thing. Yeah. And that's not true. Because the very fact that you're called to love your enemies, that Jesus clearly commands we are to love our enemies. Uh, I mean, I would say a primary characteristic of someone who's an enemy is you don't like them because of things they've done to you or might do to you or have said or or whatever. But we are still still called to love them. Um, so do I think it's possible to love someone and not like them? Absolutely. In the mere fact that Jesus calls us to love our enemies, absolutely. Um, now, there may be a miracle and a, a rest, I think, because there's a difference between like showing someone forgiveness and there being reconciliation. Reconciliation is actually a, re a restoration of the relationship. So there may be someone you don't like and you know I'm called to love them and then there's a reconciliation in the relationship and you find yourself having good feelings toward them again that you're in a close relationship but in the sense of loving your enemies you may if someone has wronged you in a terrible way you may never like them but you are called to like the best definition of love that i have heard biblically speaking of love is what c.s lewis said where he said to love someone is to will and to work for the good of another you can will and work for the good of your enemy and not have to like them that I want good things to happen to them, and I'm even willing to work to make that happen, even if I may not be a f their friend. So I don't know of any commands that say you must like someone. I don't think the Bible, and that's why I said what I said at the beginning. I don't think there's a distinction like that idea of liking. That's a very that's a very English term that we use. Um, there's I can't think of any biblical concept of liking someone compared to loving them um i don't know if we need a different word for that or i mean i think it's maybe just a human way of trying to discern like like we kind of split that hair a little bit because we're trying to discern our feelings from what we think see we i wonder if like is do. just a feeling word yeah if it yeah. really is just a, a reference to loves a decision word yeah that uh if I have good feelings towards someone, if I'm in a, a like a good relationship with them, where I feel favorably toward them, then I like them. Um, whereas that that distinction is not really made in the scriptures, and so it's hard to. Anyway, I mean the the short answer is yes, it's possible to. Always inspired like by them. the stories of like Corey Tinboom and people who were who went through the Holocaust mm. and then later confronted their 
the people who, you know, the, some of the, the people who were the torture, uh, in charge, in charge of the torture and everything going on, going on at the concentration camps and then to look them in the eye and forgive them. Yeah. I mean, I'm always inspired by those kinds of, because I, then I think to myself how I'm sh- surely that, that person who went through something that terrible and had that done to them by certain people, there's no way they could like them, have good feelings yeah. towards them. But to love them and, and, to, and to forgive them is, is possible through the Holy Spirit. And then I think to myself, I can't even do that with the guy across the street that's driving me nuts. I mean, we need to put a little sure. bit of perspective on and, that. And maybe another way to parse this too, because I don't want to make it sound like, oh yeah, you can just like actively not like someone, have bad feelings, and just think it's okay. Because, I mean, oftentimes it's it's hard to have those types of emotions towards someone and not treat them poorly. So, I mean, it may be hard to love to like someone the way we use it um, and not love them, meaning you will and work toward their good. Um, maybe the person, whoever asked that, is feeling bad. Like, there have been times when I've had negative emotions toward people. Is that okay? It's okay in the sense that we can't control our emotions. Some Some of maybe the bigger questions you have to ask in that is, what type of action does that promote in me toward that person? If it doesn't promote love, meaning I'm not willing, I'm not willing to will and work the good toward that person, then it's not okay that you don't like them. And some of that is, man, one of the reasons you pray for your enemy is, gosh, that doesn't, that's the prayer isn't just for their their benefit. It's actually, I think, for yours as well, because I find the people I pray for, uh, my heart begins to change toward that person over time. God can do a work in me. And if you think about the other way around, we tend to water down the word love. Because of like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which means that basically, why well, I, I can love everyone, but when it comes to actual action and loving people in action and deciding, yeah, that's different than just throwing out that word. You yeah. Know? We act, so. yeah, for the most part, I feel like in our culture, we attach primarily emotions to both of those words when it may really only need to be attached to the first one. No, that's really, really good. Okay, let's go on to the next one. It seems sin was... Uh, accepted at a higher level in the Bible than today. Murder and sexual sin was common and mentioned as normal. Is there a question there? Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't I, hear a question. I think what they're, if there is a question, I think what they're asking is, uh, do we have the same view of sin as it is, like maybe even in the Old Testament, that it seems like God was accepting. Why was God seemingly accepting of things that we read about in the Old Testament, but he's not uh, nowadays. And we, you know, I think that's, I can understand this question a little bit because I've heard people make the case like, why was there polygamy mm. in the Old Testament? And why did God say, you know, why did he just kind of seem to let that go uh, seemingly? Uh, what about murder? Uh, God, you know, uh, some people would say God performed those murders. So why would he, would he be all, he's all about, that in the Old Testament, but then Jesus says to hate his murder. Hmm. So they, they, they seem like contradiction, if that makes sense. Sure. Oh, boy. Uh, that's, a, that's deep theology right there. Uh, I mean, some of that speaks to the idea of progressive revelation. Because um, I remember there was even a class I took in college called Biblical Theology. And I remember whenever I took the class, I was like, that's a funny name for a class because isn't all theology supposed to be biblical? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why, like, what's unique about this as opposed to like 
systematic theology or historical theology or, you know, or whatever. Um, but it was actually very eye-opening because what biblical theology was about was showing how theology develops through biblical history. Mm. Meaning yeah. certain theological concepts about the character of God, the nature of man, all those types of things were not static throughout biblical history, meaning that as God revealed himself more and more throughout history, um, our view on things or the way humans were expected to respond to that revelation changed. Meaning, yes, there is a different standard of how we understand sin on this side of the cross because there was no one there was no ultimate display of god's mercy and grace in the cross because the cross hadn't happened yet so god was primarily known through the law which was if you sin de death is deserved and you will die and and that's it and i mean essentially all the only response you have is try harder try to earn maybe offer sacrifices that temporarily cover um but there there's no ultimate payment for sin and so I wonder, and this is just me shooting in the dark a little bit, I wonder if that, that is the result of some of that is that, I mean, in a sense, there's parts in the scripture that talk about how God was, uh, I mean, essentially patient with humans throughout human history, knowing that as he revealed himself more and more, then much would much more would be expected. And so he, because I, th I think it's in Romans somewhere where it says that temporarily he overlooked our sins, but now I think it's in Acts actually, uh, when he's speaking to the, uh, when Paul's preaching in Athens, he says that he overlooked our ignorance for a time, but now has called everyone to repent at the revelation of Christ, because we get the the complete and total revelation of who G who God is through Jesus Christ. Um, so that would be my first thought. Feel free to jump no, in. No, I think that's think good. Around. I think the only thing that comes through my mind, and I'm not so sure, I'm going to say this simply, and I'm sure it's not this simple, uh, but I've heard you say this before too, and I think this is true. Just because everything, things you read in the Bible are descriptive doesn't make it prescriptive. Yeah. Meaning that in the Old Testament, you read a lot of history that you don't read in the New Testament. In other yeah. words, by its sheer nature of literary type, it's describing things that happen. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that God was pres prescribing it, that he was saying that he's okay with all this too. Because in a lot of the, the Old Testament books, and even in some of the New, uh, there are things that are described happening and the and the writer gives gives no commentary on it. Some parts yeah, exactly. there is commentary, meaning it said the Lord was very displeased about such and such thing. But it's not rare for that for there not to be any commentary. But then a lot of times it's it's simply describing what happened, and they didn't necessarily need to give commentary because they assumed the people who were writing it knew the law, and knew like ooh yeah, that, yeah. what that person just did was evil. It was wrong. Yeah. I mean, even David's. The, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, the story of David committing adultery, like when the event is actually described, there's no moral judgment commentary given in the moment that it happens. The only reason why, the only thing that points to it being this evil thing is later when Nathan the prophet shows up and yeah, says something. We keep reading, we find out. <laughs> if you take out the commentary given by Nathan, you'd think, well, it's just okay that he did that. He, he had an affair with this woman and had her husband killed, and that's it. The only reason we know is because there's a prophet who said something. Obviously, that's whoever authored, what is it, First, First Kings? Uh, 
whoever authored that, uh, obviously didn't think that was okay. They were more explaining what happened, not necessarily giving commentary on it. Yeah, I've kind of put it, said it this way before. There's a difference between something which is said in the Bible or biblical and something which is unbiblical and something which is anti-biblical. Yeah. There's a difference. In other words, just because something's not in the Bible doesn't make it anti-biblical. And just because something is in the Bible doesn't make it anti-biblical or make you know because you have to go with context and understand. Yeah. And I don't think I think we I think one kind of false notion out there is that God changed from New Testament to Old Testament, Old Testament to New Testament in the sense of His character and what yeah. He what He approved and what He didn't approve. And earlier, when you were referring to some of the the ignorance of the generations, I don't think that's what you were saying. Yeah. You weren't saying that God had been changing, you know, flip-flopping back and forth in his yeah. character. Instead, it's the way that we're reading it and the perception. Yeah. And to say that God is a murderer in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament, actually he is. He murdered his own son, if you think about it in that regard. Yeah. What I mean, all I mean by that is that he, he allowed that to happen. Why? For our benefit. Since he is God, he doesn't have this same. I mean, he's the creator. Yeah. He can stop something. He could start something. And so when we see it as murder... We have to really check our perceptions as to is that really murder? Yeah. Because I, I, like I just said, well, in that case, he murdered his own son. Yeah. I mean, so we have to really check our perceptions because we're not God. We try to read a lot of things into it uh, that we're trying to catch, like like we're trying to catch God in some sort yeah. of. Uh, I mean, even contradiction of himself. Well, even Ananias and Sapphira, an, an example of. Someone actually in the New Testament, this is post post cross, yeah, yeah, post even the outpouring of the Spirit, people being like a judgment falls on two people dead. and yeah. they were struck dead. Um, so to say, like, oh, God was all fire and brimstone and you know, destruction and death in the Old Testament, now he's all love and grace and mercy. Now it's like, no, he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Um, that there's just Again, there's that progressive revelation of we're, we're finding out more who God is, more clearly. It's not that he changed. We're given a clear picture of who he was. Um, and then, of course, I mean, there's a, the difference in covenants as well. There is a difference in our relationship with God from the Old to New Covenant, which that's a whole, oh my gosh. And did he work out thing bad itself. things into good things? Yes, over and over in the Old Testament yeah. and New Testament. Take a look at the Cain and Abel story. That he didn't approve of that. Good grief, it's obvious he didn't approve yeah. of that. Uh, but did good things happen eventually out of that? Yes. What about Paul, who was a murderer when he was Saul in the New yeah. Testament, but yet he became Paul, missionary to the... Well, even the polyg polygamy thing that's talking about, it's like, oh, like polygamy was practiced widely, and yeah. of course then it's spoken against in the New Testament. Yeah, but look at every story, every mention of polygamy, like the stories like the, with the patriarchs and David It was terrible. Solomon. It was a mess. It was... It, oh, there were, Every single story, there's always negative results and consequences of that happening. Downfall of Solomon. Yeah. He was told directly, this will be your downfall. Yeah. And so, I mean, even if there may not be like God appears out of the clouds and say, only have one wife. But no, you can even see from the results like, okay, being married to multiple people, clearly there's jealousy, um, there's idolatry that occurs, there's all kinds of problems that occur with that, that that's not God's intention. Because even the original model in Adam and Eve is a man and a woman. Well, there married, you go. See, even our best life. theologians, like Paul himself, when he talks about relationships and marriage, what's he do? He goes back to Adam and Eve. Which is before any of that. Exactly. So that's all post-sin entering into the world. So anyway. Well, I'll tell you, that's, that's a hard question Ooh, to answer is, quickly, yeah, and we didn't, I'm sure we didn't, did not do it justice. But here's another one. 
how can you explain the contradictions in the Bible? And this this is a question I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer. And maybe you can kind of... Yeah, I mean, without giving a specific example, I'm going to have to assume examples that the person is thinking of and I don't know that they're thinking of um, because what they there are certain things that the person who asked the question might consider to be a contradiction that I don't. Yeah, if you want to get back to us, email us, talk to us about a specific yeah, I would actually be interested specific, specific contradiction or what you yeah. assume is a contradiction in the scripture. We could we could definitely address that. Now to wax philosophical a little bit about it, um, I mean, I personally don't think that there are contradictions in the Bible. Um, probably the the closest thing that I could you know, go toward speaking toward that type of thing is I do believe that sometimes there are tensions, theological tensions in the Bible that are not always resolved. And some of that is because it's concepts that the realm of it is beyond our understanding. What's that verse? You've quoted it before talking about the deep things belong to the Lord. Yeah, secret the, things. The secret things belong, belong to the Lord, to but the, the Lord. things revealed Deuteronomy to us. 29, 29. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, sometimes it touches into that, like the idea of like the idea of predestination versus free will, God electing and foreordaining things. And yet we are also somehow responsible for all of our choices. Um, I think those are both true. It, it is impossible to avoid the idea of God ordaining things and electing and that type of thing because it's talked about very openly in Scripture. But I can point to just as many other passages that speak of us having to actively choose and being held to those choices, actually being judged for those choices. Uh, I guess in our human minds, we can view that as a contradiction. Either God elects or we choose. Um, but I think it's both. I think it's both at the same time, and I think that's a theological tension that the fullness of how we understand that is beyond our comprehension. We can't fully grasp it because we're finite no, That's really good. Uh, we would really entertain something more specific on yeah, that. Yeah, that wasn't me like giving a comment, like, give us an example or we're not going to answer right. it. Like, no, literally, if the person had a specific thing yeah. in mind, email us well, and we let just, us know. We I don't do. want to go on and on because we're not sure exactly what is meant. Yeah. The other thing, well, the other thing with this though is to understand is that there are a lot of contradictions. Is some of the ones you just kind of mentioned that come from interpretation yeah. rather than actual scripture. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I love what a professor one time that said: "There's really only one interpretation of the Bible, and it's God's. We're the ones that are screwed up." Yeah. Oh sure. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, but it's 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 uh, it's a good question in the sense that if you give us some more specifics, we could answer. Okay, here's another one: In heaven. Would you uh, rec- should you be able to recognize family members, uh, and if you didn't even know, maybe you didn't even know them while you were alive, like maybe ancestors. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, based off, I mean, just one example off the top of my head, why I think that would be the case: Transfiguration, story of the Transfiguration. Uh, how did the disciples know that those two beings that appeared talking to Jesus were Moses and Elijah. It had to be supernatural, yeah. That they were, they were these beings who appeared and started talking to Jesus, and the scriptures say that it was Moses and Elijah, but Peter actually names it, like, hey, do you want me to build a booth for you three guys? How did he know? I mean, I think that there's going to be a level of knowing and uh, recognition that is beyond our limitations now um, to where I think every human being who ever lived will know each other in the truest and deepest sense, uh, the deepest amount of intimacy between every person uh, in the kingdom. And that's kind of cool that you'll be able to see someone and know them. Like, that's kind of cool. I like that idea. 
Yeah, that's really cool. That's a, that's a good answer. Here's the next one. We need to keep going. What does the Bible say about fasting, and why isn't it discussed or practiced regularly within the church? Prayer and fasting seem to go hand in hand in the Bible, but even the message today was about prayer without any mention of fasting. Now, I do want to. I was the one that preached that sermon on prayer. Oh, okay. During this series, sure. on why does God not seem to answer prayer? But that really was my focus. That's why I didn't get into fasting. Yeah. Because I was I was trying to specifically answer that question: Why does God not seem to answer our prayers? Hmm. Uh, I guess it could have mentioned fasting along with that, but it just didn't seem to be the. I wasn't teaching on prayer. Sure. Yeah. If I was teaching on prayer, I think I would have. I think that I think this yeah. person is right that there's a strong connection. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like whoever asked that seemed to be dissatisfied that fasting wasn't talked about. So maybe they more meant why isn't fasting talked about more or practiced? Yeah, and that's when a good question. When it says in the church, yeah. I assume they mean our church? Because I was going to say, I mean, fasting is taught on and practiced quite a bit in the church. Um, and, I mean... Or maybe they're just their church experience? Yeah, maybe. No matter where. Um, I mean... I personally will fast from time to time, probably not as often as I should, even though I don't know what the answer is, how often should you fast? Um, I mean, but that's a spiritual practice that's common for a lot of people just to take intentional times to deny yourself food or other things, not even just food, to not deny yourself for a period of time to um, just seek God intentionally in prayer. Um, I mean, I know multiple people in our church who fast, um, like I said, I fast occasionally. Um, actually, we're getting ready to do a series uh, on prayer at the beginning of the year, and fasting is actually going to be talked about in that series. Um, so, I mean, could it be preached on more, like on a Sunday morning? I, I guess. Of course, you could say that about any topic. Should Bible reading be preached about more? Sure. I mean, any topic you could say should be talked about more. Um, so, Sure. I, I guess I've always... And I, this is probably a weak excuse, but I think part of the reason to me, when I read it, read through the scriptures on fasting, when it's mentioned and talked about, it does seem like a really private matter. Hmm. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about it or preach on it. Well, Jesus even talked about that. He says, when you fast, yeah. don't look all somber right. and groan, oh, I'm fasting. And, and I'm sure you can say the same about prayer. Yeah. But it seems like prayer is talked about in all sorts of different contexts that fasting isn't. Sure. And fasting does seem to have a consistent context of being a real private thing. The only time I can see it being is if we had a, if we actually had a church call to fast for yeah, a particular sure. reason, which uh, we will at the beginning of the year. Actually. Which we will, but we, we're still not going to like have everybody stand up and tell us how long you've been fasting. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's not going to be that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a very private private matter in that regard. And I, I'm not I'm not really trying to disagree against. Or with the statement that we should talk about it more. I'm, I guess I'm just trying to say that's just my take. Sure. On and I mean, honestly, which this is this is just speaking to our culture. We live in a very decadent, uh, self-indulgent culture. That I mean, probably the reason why fasting isn't talked about as much as it could be in our culture is because it's uncomfortable. It's hard, and so there's probably an unconscious bias toward not talking about it, because oh man, if I do that, then I'm going to have to do it, and I don't want to because it's uncomfortable. Um, it's hard. It, it actually physically requires something of me, which is difficult. Um, so it's possible that's there. I'm not indicting anybody by saying that. Um, but I've, I've noticed that prayer isn't practiced as much probably in our culture than it is other 
other parts of the world. And some of that, I think, just reflects the decadence of our culture. And man, God help us with that. Um, That's really good. We're going to keep going on because we've got, we've got uh, quite a few left. Okay. Uh, we're going to try to finish it up we'll try today. To go qu- try to go quicker on them. Is it ever justified to express anger with physical violence? I, my first reaction is, why are you, why are you angry? Hmm. I'm not so sure that we have a right or any justification for anger. Now, I, a lot of people would disagree with me, and they would say that there's a such thing as a righteous anger. I'm not sure where that's at scripturally. I mean, I, I'm the only the only examples I've heard people give would be like Jesus got mad in the temple and started throwing tables around. Isn't that in? A, I think it's Ephesians where it talks about be be angry but without sin. Do not let sin go sun go down on your anger. Yeah, but I, I still don't know if that's what it's. I I don't know. I I really wrestle with whether or not I, Jesus uh, had a right to throw tables in the temple. Uh, you don't. Uh, I don't. And so I, I I don't know I have a hard time so when you say physical violence expressing your anger in physical violence um, I don't I guess a simple answer for me is no uh, there isn't any justification for it I I, I do I do want to say I do want to add a caveat in my opinion here and that is that doesn't mean that I won't use physical violence if needed like to defend my family <laughs> or something like that uh, I was in the military. Um, I believe in us defending our country. Uh, so I'm not saying that, that there's no justification for any physical violence ever, but I do think it's interesting how this question is phrased in the sense of expressing anger in that way. I'm not sure that that's justifiable. But Yeah, I found it. It's uh, Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Um, yeah, I mean, I would almost, uh, I mean, I would almost treat anger. And I don't think that's justifying anger, personally. I, I, I like to. So I need to say, get. So, are you saying it's wrong to feel anger? If I feel angry, it's sin, because I disagree with that. Uh, no, I'm saying for us to hold on to anger or to have some sort of righteous anger to feel like it's righteous. I don't think that that's justifying. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I would say that. It's an interesting discussion. I, I would There's almost, I would almost treat it like sadness. Mm-hmm. It's not wrong to feel sadness, but you're not meant to hold on to sadness. Right, right. That it's something you're meant to work through. I think there are some that say, though, that it, that in certain cases, anger is justifiable, and we call it righteous anger. And I am guess I'm trying to say is I'm not so sure that that exists. Yeah, I guess the question I'd ask, justified to feel it or justified to hold on to it? No, I mean exhibit it. Because I would say it's justified. Like Jesus throwing the tables. Right. Uh, That's what I'm arguing against. I'm not arguing about feeling. Okay. I'm arguing about, I'm arguing kind of against, is it justifiable to have physical violence? That's good. Expressing through anger. And I'm questioning as to whether or not we should even be angry in the first place enough to lead to physical violence kind of thing. Yeah. And to me, that's an expression that's not really justifiable. I would agree. I'm not with saying that. it doesn't happen, but we're sinners. You know, things happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever result to physical violence either, but it doesn't necessarily have to be expressed out of anger, out of the heat of the moment. Or uh, I think we need to have self-control, as it, as uh, it talks about in uh, Galatians five. Hmm, it's interesting. Hey, th- there's a lot more I'm sure we could tackle on that. Yes. Uh, and again, Tyler and I are just kind of. You know, reacting to the questions the best yeah. we can with Bible in hand and doing the best we can, uh, but we're not. We haven't sat down and studied for hours on one particular topic. Sure. So, like you've said, I don't know how many times. You know, we can give a sure we're not a final sure word. we're not a final yeah, word absolutely. on these things. All right, so, let's keep moving. Okay, 
if someone believes Jesus is a son of God, has been baptized, goes to church, has been baptized, and goes to church, tithes, but lives for themselves and does not surrender their lives to God, should they expect to enter, enter the kingdom of heaven? No, I don't. Because if you've not, if you're not, sur- if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, that I mean, that is what faith is. That's what repentance is. That if you you could. If you've not surrendered your life to Christ, you haven't been baptized. You got dunked in water. That's that's what literally what baptism is. That is submitting yourself to the death of Christ and rising up in newness of life. That's what baptism is. If you if if that is not your heart when you're baptized, you have not been baptized. You were dunked in water, and that's it. Um, that's that's that faith working itself out in love. Um, so if someone, I don't care how much money you give, Gentile, I mean, or pagans give. You know, different religions give alms. That doesn't necessarily mean that that somehow makes you right with God or earns you. I mean, it almost seems like a works righteousness thing of if I do these things, have I earned my way into the kingdom? Um, but no, man, the, the center of salvation is a, is a surrendering, a yielding, a yielding of oneself to God in Christ um, through faith. Um, and if you've not done that, it doesn't matter how much you give or if you go to church or if you've been baptized or not. Um, yeah, it's like we're whittling it down to some sort of event. Yeah. Or at this particular moment, I'm saved, and then I can do whatever I want from that yeah. point forward kind as, of thing. As Tim Maxson would always say, I mean, <laughs> the litmus test is real simple. If you've not been changed, you've not been changed. It's that simple. If if my life has not been transformed, and again, that doesn't mean I'm perfect and never mess up or anything like that, but if there's not a metanoia, a a repentance, a changing of my life— then I've not repented. I've not changed. Yeah, what's at the core? Yeah. yeah. And I think the thing is, even then, uh, we should never judge someone else's salvation. Which, that's actually a good second point. I don't get to make that call. You don't get to make that call. We don't not, We don't get to make that call. God ultimately makes the call of whether a heart change is genuine or not. So me saying that is not passing judgment on anyone. But that is the litmus test put out is a transformed life. Yeah, what you're saying is what we know from the Scripture. But as far as what, if God wants to save the worst person in the world, yeah, he can save the worst person in the world, which may be me. Because the thing is, I've given my life to Jesus and tried to surrender myself to him, but there are times when I live in an unsurrendered posture, I mean, truthfully, where I'm not yielding myself to him as I should. Um, so, But that doesn't mean like I'm waffling back and forth wondering whether I'm saved. I know I belong to Jesus, and I'm trusting in his mercy and his grace, not my ability, to, again, not my ability to respond to him. That's really good. You answered that really well. Hey, two more. What if you lose faith in your pastor? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, I don't know what that means. It's hard not to take that personal. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, well, maybe it is personal. I don't know. <laughs> um yeah, I don't. I guess I don't know what that means. Whether that is referring to, I think we the, should the take pa- it. The, the pastors had some sort of moral failing. Yeah, I think we should take it as if you live in a culture nowadays. I mean, you see some of the biggest wigs in religion, for lack of a better term, fall. Mm. Uh, and you, and people go to church and they expect, I guess, the pastor to lead and be a humble servant of God. Then they turn out to be just as sinful and arrogant as everybody else, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what if you? What if you know, what do you kind of do with that when your leaders are not, they, you know, don't really seem to be authentic? Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I mean, there's there's two different ways I think I could go with that question. One being if there's some sort of a moral failing in the pastor. 
Um, which I mean is why the New Testament model is a plurality of leadership in terms of elders of the church um, that can respond to that type of situation. Going through the Matthew 18 process of, in, you know, if they're, if the pastor somehow sinned against someone individually and that needs to be addressed and there needs to be repentance between, the, you know, a, a conversation or repentance between those two people, um, or if it is more of a public thing where the person needs to step out of leadership for a time, um, that's one thing. And I can understand a, a losing a faith in that person. Um, of course, I don't know, I even struggle with the idea of putting your faith in your pastor Sometimes I think we can put leaders on a pedestal, meaning I'm expecting them to live and be in this way that no one can live up to that. So it is literally just a matter of time before they do something that knocks them off the pedestal. Um, and then I quote unquote lose faith in them. Sometimes I think how this question might even be interpreted, and I don't know that the person who asked it meant it this way, is when the pastor doesn't meet my personal preferences, meaning the leader is leading in a way that I would prefer it a different way. And because they're not doing it exactly the way I want, then I think they're a bad leader and I lose faith in them. Um, some of that is, I mean, just recognize, recognizing the consumeristic mentality that can sometimes be in our mind that we think church and the way ministry should be is all about me and meeting my wants and needs. And man, that's a, that's a dangerous thing in our culture that I think, I mean, sometimes we propagate it ourselves as leaders because we give in to that for the sake of just satisfying people. We give them what they want um, when really the work of discipleship is sometimes very much pain more painful and difficult than that. Um, but, I mean, if it's a matter of they're not doing what I want them to do, not meeting my personal preferences. No, that's really good to differentiate. I want yeah. to echo something you said a little earlier. Sure. And that is I think we need to start with uh, the pastors need to understand what the word pastor means, mm. and the people need to understand what the word pastor means. Yeah, it means under shepherd, mm. and under who? Who's the leader of the church? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, we're all going to fail. I think one thing that just—I'll be honest with you—one thing that just drives me nuts is that I don't think people sometimes understand the vocation uh, minister. You know, the, the one who is a pastor has a job at a church when they fail. It's very public. Mm. And not only that, when they fail, they lose their job, they lose their friends, they lose their family in certain cases. Yeah, It's terrible. When someone does the same exact thing in the church body, that stuff doesn't necessarily happen. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But I, what I, all I'm trying to say is we need to understand, first of all, that they're under shepherds, they're people who are, who are, who are sinners. Mm. You know, you and I, as pastors, that title, we're sinners. Or men, yeah. we fail. We have to be on guard all the time, just like anybody else who's trying to follow Jesus. So with that being the case, I think it's very important, and as you alluded to earlier, don't put somebody on a pedestal. And true, a true pastor, an under-shepherd, is always going to point to the over-shepherd. Yeah, a true pastor is always going to point. We want you as pastors, and I know Tyler, I'm speaking for him because I know it's true with him. We want you to follow Jesus. Yeah, We don't want you to follow a pastor. So when you lose faith in a pastor, it, it doesn't affect your faith. Yeah. And I mean, truthfully, if there is a failing on the leader's part and there needs to be that, like the Matthew 18 addressing of the problem, a face-to-face -face discussion. Love your pastor, too. Man, <laughs> one, pray for As us. A but, but two, man, I, for a leader to be hungry, I, I was always told to be hungry, humble, and teachable. 
those are the most important yeah, that's things. Really good. And it's like, I want to be hungry. I want to be, I want to be hungry for God. I want to be humble, meaning that I can be approached. I don't think too highly of myself. And then I'm teachable, meaning I'm open to correction. If someone approaches me saying, Hey, you said this or did this and it bothered me, man, I want to be open to that. And I want to be open. If I need to repent, I'll repent. But unfortunately that expectation can sometimes be abused. Meaning back to the second yeah. thing is, when the pastor doesn't do the thing that I personally want, it has nothing to do with sin. It's just about my personal preference. But I attack them like they have sinned. Man, that can be damaging on a leader because I feel like I get personally attacked. Oh, you're not kidding. If I'm not yeah. able to please everybody. And the thing is, you're never going to make everybody happy. And for me and my conflict-avoidant personality, man, that's a hard reality for me to accept because I want to please everybody. It's really hard for Tyler to accept. Let me tell you, folks. Yeah. It really is. He's... He wants to please everybody. Now, yeah. with me, you can go to another church if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm yeah. joking. I love it. No, but but you know what? I think sometimes we're just in the wrong local church hmm. if we have a personal preference problem. Yeah. You know, and we need to recognize that and not not get upset about it. And so that's the you challenge. Know, understand for the that of God's saying, church is yeah. huge. If know? I feel like I'm lost faith in my pastor, I guess the bottom line is discerning in your own heart why is it because something of a genuine sin issue that maybe needs to be addressed one-on-one -on -one or maybe through the elders if you know if it escalates to that point um or is it more of i check my own heart and realize yeah this is just about a personal preference because i was brought up in a certain tradition that did things this way and he does things that way and it personal preference it bothers me but really it has nothing to do with sin or any any way they failed so you follow jesus yeah. Secondly, be there for your pastor if needed. And, and and thirdly, if you just can't seem to get over things, understand the church is really big. Kingdom of God is a lot bigger. You don't need to necessarily be in one particular place. Yeah. If you absolutely. feel like it's just not working out. Okay, here's the last question. It's been a long one today, but we got we finished. Yeah. So here's here it is. How does sin separate us from God? If God is everywhere all the time, can we really be separated from him? And what does it mean to be separated, and how does Jesus solve that separation? Hmm. It's the gospel in a nutshell, right? Yeah, here. I mean, we, we talked about this in some sense in uh, the panel discussion that we actually had on a right. Sunday morning. So we talked about this a little bit. I think one interesting part of this that maybe we could approach today uh, quickly is this. God is everywhere hmm. all the time. How can we be separated from God if he's everywhere all the time? Yeah, I, I don't think it's so much that, like, if you sin, you're suddenly in this God void where God is unable to be there, or he's, like, playing hide-and-seek and doesn't want anything to do with you. I think it more speaks to its language of intimacy, meaning the relationship that I had with God, the intimacy that I was made, created to have with the Father, um, is is severed. I mean, how many, just use family and our human relationship dynamics. There are marriages that you're still living together, but you're separated from each other because intimacy has been broken because of something that was done or something that was said. Yeah, you may be physically in the room with the person, but there is a separation there. And it's a separation that there has to be hard work to mend it, which was the work of Christ to be able to allow us back into relationship with God. Well, Paul uses the word reconciliation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So what does that mean? That doesn't mean the parties have gone away. Yeah. 
that means the parties need to be reconciled, be brought back together in a more intimate way. Relationship is reforged. There's a reestablishment of intimacy uh, between the two. And, and it's sin. Paul says our sin makes us an enemy of the cross. Yeah. Paul says our sin separates us. Then he says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. It's, I mean, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that there's no one that's out of reach when it comes to salvation. Mm. That God can bring that back together, that there can be reconciliation. Uh, but you're exactly right. It's not like a... If there was a physical separation in the sense of God's not here, this would be would be done. There'd be there'd no life. There's no breath for anyone. Yeah. I mean... Everyone, good and bad, which that whatever, is, however you want to put it, good and evil, however you want to put it. Which that is, in a sense, the the probably one of the best descriptions for hell. I mean, because yeah, like it was yeah. in Psalm sixteen, in, in Psalm sixteen that says, "In your presence is full, is fullness of joy, and at your right hands are pleasures forevermore." Um, so to be shut out from the presence of God, as it says in First Thessalonians. Or maybe Second Thessalonians, where it describes the destruction of being handed over to eternal judgment, is they are shut out from the presence of God. So, if it, in His presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, what's what is a lack of that? To be shut out from that is death, and that is that is the consequence of sin. To be shut out from that, and that's terror. That's more terrifying than any talk of you know, fire or, you know, being burnt or whatever, even though those are all, Im- that's all imagery that's used for eternal judgment. Um, you know, it is amazing to me how often we talk of the lack of intervention of God hmm. in a negative way. If we really saw what kind of intervention he has on a daily basis, yeah, then we would maybe under start to, have a, you know, be, begin to fathom a little bit as to what it means to have God around alive right now in our midst, even in the midst of the unbeliever. I mean, somebody was yeah. telling me, have you ever thought about just the impact of Jesus on our culture? Hmm. Not, and I'm not talking about just individual salvation. I'm talking about the impact on the on the world. Think about the hospitals that we have, the art, hospitals, the music. universities. The, yeah, think about everything that we have yeah. has come from what? Christians. I mean, a lot. There's a lot of Christian influences, put it that way. Yeah. I'm not trying to like give to that as the only horn, but what I'm what I'm trying to say is that without Jesus, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of world will we be living in right now? Yeah, absolutely. Overall, hey, good stuff. And uh, hey, you got any kind of last words of encouragement? And people who are listening probably been been. Uh, I know several people just been listening to every single one of them, and that's a lot of a lot of minutes listening yeah, to for us. Sure. Yeah, I mean. The thing that's interesting to me about all of this is that much of the theology of church history, this is how I always heard it explained, theology came out of pastoral concerns, meaning people had, which this is what I saw in almost all of these questions, you see almost a hurt or a woundedness connected to many of these questions, meaning they experience something personally, and so they ask this question. But that is actually historically how most of theology developed, is there was real-life issues going on, and the questions about God and the spiritual life came out of those hurts and pains and experiences, and that's how we articulated how God, how we live the with-God life um, is out of those experiences. And so, I mean, I think this is great that uh, there's a format that has been given in which those questions can be asked, and we'll do stuff like this in the future again, too. That's Um, great. And please understand something. You may... You may see it may seem to you that some of these answers that we're trying to give is that they're inadequate, and they very well may be. 
you know, understand this. That doesn't mean that there isn't there are answers. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that, that he's just contradicted himself all the place, and so therefore he doesn't exist. Don't jump to those kind of conclusions. Instead, be open to ask more questions. Yeah. <laughs> keep searching. Keep seeking. Well, it's like the metaphor I used before. I heard, I heard someone, I didn't make this up, but I heard someone use it saying that, you know, considering our answers to be the end-all, be-all of something is the difference between pointing at the moon and the moon itself that our answers are simply a finger pointing at the moon. Just because our fingers are not the moon does not mean there is no moon.